0: Welcome to an all-new Great Moments in Weed History. On this episode, we're going to jump in the hotbox time machine and head all the way back to 2700 BC to hear the story of Magu, an ancient Chinese hemp goddess who lived on a mountaintop full of cannabis plants where she brewed the elixir of life. And doesn't that sound nice? My guides for this trip are Christina Wong and Wendy Zhang two chefs, culinary cannabis creators, and the co-hosts of Mogu Magu, a culture, food, and cannabis collective exploring the Asian immigrant experience. Christina pitched me the idea for this episode when we were seated together at an industry breakfast in Las Vegas, and I gotta say, before the coffee arrived, I was pretty much all in. I've known Christina for a few years and greatly admire the writing and videos she produces under her fruit and flower banner, but it was the ancient history angle that captured my imagination. I hadn't met Wendy before this interview, but I knew she won Food Network's chopped 420 cannabis cooking competition, which is pretty wild. When I co-created the Bong Appetit series on Vice back in 2014, uh, well, a show where an Italian grandma made weed-buttered gnocchi was still considered really edgy. Food Network, meanwhile, is some shit my mom watches on the reg. Yeah, I'm losing my edge. I'm losing my edge.
1: To better looking people. With better ideas. And more talent. And actually
0: We all journey back into the distant past and meet Magu, the hemp goddess. I'd like to pause just briefly and ask you to all throw in a little something for the ride. Think of it this way: over close to hundred and fifty episodes of this podcast over more than five years time. We've traveled tens of thousands of lit years of history together, lit years being like light years, but, you know, you're stoned. Anyway, yes, the hotbox time machine runs on hemp-based biomass and not harmful fossil fuels, but the old road trip adage still applies when it comes to gas money, and that is cash, grass, or hash nobody rides for free and here's the thing my friends i've actually got plenty of hash and grass so that just leaves cash okay so uh seriously i'm only asking you to throw in if you listen to this show on the reg the way my mom watches food network and i'm only asking for one dollar a month though you know more is more and i'm only asking because i want to keep making This show and the coffers have been a little light lately. So please, at least check out our Patreon at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and see what you've been missing in terms of bonus content and secret seshes and whizzle-wuzzles. And maybe you want to get a signed copy of my book or, you know, put five on it. Anyway, let's get ready to meet Magu. I've got a nice, fatty... J rolled up and ready, but wait, I'm hearing that you, yes, you are saying, all right, I'm a little lit, but we're going back to 2700 BC. I got to be a lot more lit than I am lit already, and that's an easy problem. As you know, you can probably say it with me. All you got to do is hit paw and chill, and you can use That time at your leisure to roll yourself a joint or to split a blunt or to pack a bong or to indabulate a dab or to make yourself some nice hemp tea like the deity herself might do. Anyway, you slice it when you hit unpause because you're lit and ready to roll. I promise you this will all be lit. And ready for another great moment in In weed weed history. Christina and Wendy, welcome to you both to great moments in weed history.
1: Hey, David, thanks for having, for us. having us.
0: Absolutely. Well, we have a big historical topic to discuss on this Weeds episode, but I, I want to start by asking you the question I ask pretty much every guest at the top of the show to set your weed journey uh by letting us know the first time you encountered this plant.
1: Oh man, I guess I'll start. My my first encounter was in high school and I was dumb and I didn't know anything, but I was friends with all the stoners at the rival high school and of course my crush was there and all these cute guys and they were always smoking. And I didn't really partake myself, but one time at one party I was like, "Okay, I'll try it. I trust I like I trust my friends." And that led to me not touching cannabis for maybe the next 20 years of my life because I was dumb and I had a huge bong rip and I was throwing up for like at least five hours. And so that scared me. And my thought was like, okay this isn't for me. My body doesn't agree with it. I will just stay away from it. And it wasn't until I got a job in the industry and it was newly legal that I had safe access and people to teach me and give me product and tell me, teach me moderation that I suddenly felt comfortable again. And then when Wendy and I met and we started getting high and just consuming and eating great food and talking, like these magical things started happening and unfolding for us.
0: Well, I'll just quickly interject and say I can personally still picture the purple plastic graphics bong uh, that 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 did me harm uh, <laughs> the first time I ever took a bong hit and I could close my eyes and see that little Joker logo uh, haunting my nightmares that night. Wendy, was it love at first toke or was it a rocky road?
2: I would say it was probably love at first toke. Similarly to Christina, it was also boy crush incentivized. I never heard Christina articulate the story, so I didn't realize <laughs> that like both of us were like, you know, crushing on these stoner boys. There was this guy in my art class, some people nicknamed him the muffin man, because he would make wee muffins to bring to the school. And I just, you know, thought he was so cute. And we and one day after school, you know, we were hanging out and he uh, showed me how to smoke out of a pipe. So I think maybe that's why it wasn't like as intense, because I just got a little bit of a head change. And um, and it gave me the uh t h c courage to like give this crush a kiss and so it was it was like a little bit of that awkward, high kind of kiss, but it was still mostly pleasant, so I had a pretty good uh pleasant an intro to cannabis, and since then, I have always consumed throughout college. And I didn't really think about having a career in cannabis, but I definitely thought about having a career in culinary arts. So I was hosting dinners, um, because that's kind of how I grew up too, is, you know, going to family dinners every weekend. And when me and my family moved and emigrated from China to uh, the US, we kept that tradition alive. So just always seeing that My family, um, bringing each other and communities together through food, it's something I just you know was not naturally modeling after. And then when you interject cannabis in there, you know it's just a even more magical vibe because the plant has such an amazing um, ability to lower our ego and create even more meaningful connections and uncover new truths. So it was just a match made in heaven that. I started not only doing just these dinner pop-ups, but doing, like, weed-infused pop-ups.
0: Right on. Well, I gotta say, uh, Wendy, I think that you and Weed had a meet-cute, is how i that. A meet-cute, that's adorable. <laughs> when do these two stories intersect? How, how did you come into each other's orbit and 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 what came out of that uh connection that you made
1: we met on instagram actually i was chef crushing on wendy we were both invited to participate in this um Cannabis Chef Cook Off, a virtual cook-off um, on Instagram. And Wendy had previously won her round uh, before. And then I was competing. And I was looking at all the other people who had won before. And she was one of them, Hedgin, Big Bad Wolf. And I and Monica Lowe, Sue Weed. And I was like, who are these badass Asian women, like just kicking ass at like culinary cannabis? And the cool thing was because of that, it connected all of us and we became friends. And Wendy and I just also happened to live near each other in Los Angeles, which is the holy grail of friendships because LA is so big, you want friends who live nearby. And so we just started hanging out and just getting high and eating hella good food. And then like just everything just started pouring out and the emotions and the connections and like Mogu Maku was born.
2: We really supported each other um, through these sesh where we eat a lot of really great food, unpacked a lot of our family trauma and our relationship with um, people in our lives and relationship with work, money, all of the things that really needed to be reexamined. We did that together. And it was so beautiful to uh, go through this journey with Christina um, from a perspective of Being a um, Asian immigrant woman, or being first gen, you know, it's we are very we have very different backgrounds, but also a lot of shared experiences.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. You know, we're we're going to tell a a story in this episode about um, sort of the deep history of the cannabis plant in asia um as of medicine as part of folklore as you know everything that we look to the plant for now um but uh you know there's also certainly a lot of stigma around the plant currently you know for everyone but perhaps particularly for asian communities i see a lot of um Activism in those communities, trying to shut down dispensaries in California, as one example. Um, so, can you talk about how how that how you see that um, and 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 you know very positively how you're you're working to to change that.
1: What you're referring to, David, was that in San Francisco, in Chinatown, there's a lot of elderly Chinese in the community, and they were protesting any new dispensaries opening specifically in that Chinatown area and in their neighborhoods. And they are octogen- septa and octogenarians who go to church, and they're being bussed in by churches with signs, and they're protesting cannabis dispensary openings. And the message is because it's bad for the community. It's bad for us. It's bad for our youth. It's bad for our children. Protect- our children and um wendy and a couple of our aapi friends who work in the cannabis space were interviewed and featured in the south china morning post and that is one of the largest most widely read i think the largest read um publication in southern china it's huge and she was featured plus everybody else talking about hey like we're young moms. So, like it's legal now it's not bad this is a part of our history and really like Being in this publication and article showing Asian faces and successful people and individuals consuming cannabis and explaining why this isn't evil and horrible and bad is really important. And that's not being shown enough. Um, Cannabis has been demonized. There's so much stigma in our community. And even still, like we think about people who are sentenced to life in prison to death for possessing cannabis or having anything, um, even CBD. And here we get the privilege of consuming daily and being able to make a living and to educate about this plant.
0: What was the most interesting kind of email or f- phone call or, or text you got uh, related to that article coming out?
2: When the article came out, it was really Uh, A cool story, you know, that I I got to tell because there was that macrocosm of what Christina just talked about, what was happening at a larger scale within the Asian community. But there was also in the microcosm of my family where this was happening. You know, when I won CHOP 420, you know, it was very publicized. So I ended up just being very honest and transparent with my parents about my involvement in the industry. And I knew that there would be a lot of stigma and propaganda that they have already bought into by just us growing up in China and like modern China is not very pro-cannabis at all. You know, in fact, very anti. So. I knew I had to overcome a lot of misinformation, and unfortunately, like my my mom, she was not very receptive at all. But my dad, he was, you know. And it's not even like, oh, he knew so much about cannabis already, but he uh, has always taken more of a scientific research perspective to. Uh, understanding any new topics, so he actually went and read a bunch of research papers f- across different universities, and was like, "Hey, just so you know, I don't have a problem with this because I'm learning and reading about how there's actually a lot of um, uh, benefits to this plan, you know, to so many people's lives, and that there's still so much more research to be had." Uh, whereas my mom, she kind of just refused to listen to any new research you know i could just see how much uh fear-based thinking there was so i'm just trying not to be so held up on the outcome of her accepting these things but continuing to show up and do what i do um and it just if anything that lets lights more of a fire under my ass to uh, make this kind of information more accessible to the asian community to reclaim our birthright to this plan because it is actually founded and has its roots in
1: China. And I think Wendy and I both met at a time in our lives where like, we were both going through a lot of growth and we found the healing presence of cannabis. It healed us. It continues to heal us. And just sitting and being high and having these conversations and sharing these comforting, familiar meals was profound and so we said we're like well how do we do this with more people and how do we invite more friends and so we just invited friends over for hot pot and that turned into a big thing
0: was that a weed pun <laughs> <laughs> can't let them slide by on this program <laughs> there's i'm not pun shaming you uh this is the this is the, 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 we, the water we swim in here w-
1: we put the pot in the hot pot yes <laughs> <laughs> But the the beauty of that was like we realized we're like, oh wow, like we're combining cannabis and our culture and food in a way that people haven't seen before. And so that led us into creating Mogu Magu, an API culture, food, and cannabis collective. We discovered a Taoist deity of hemp. And we're like, what is this? Who who is Magu and who is this character? And we really just Started pulling at the thread and became obsessed. And we found that we're like, holy crap, our Asian culture has a deity, a goddess who celebrates hemp and is celebrated for longevity and as a protector of women. And she's celebrated for healing all of Asia. How do we, as modern Asian American immigrants, learn from this story, learn from Magu and these stories that were told about her to reclaim cannabis as part of our healing journeys and to help others along the way.
0: Well we're gonna we're gonna have to jump in the old hot box time machine and head very far back, pretty much as far back almost as I think we've ever taken the hot box time machine on this show. Uh, but I wanna interject one one thought. Um uh, Wendy, I want—I just want to thank you for sharing very personal things, and and I think it resonates with a lot of people uh who have had that dynamic and i just want to share that uh my uh own mother uh, certainly began to change her views pretty radically about cannabis when it became my job and means of supporting myself so uh that definitely helped but it was only just very recently that i was able to in essence um you know without divulging anything, uh, on anyone else's behalf, but, uh, someone in my family needed medical cannabis and I was able to go with my mom and be the conduit to the plant and have her see firsthand how helpful and medicinal this plant can be. Um, and, and I just say this, I say this very often on this program in different contexts, One, don't ever give up on your family members. You don't have to have this same conversation over and over again, but you have to keep it in play because they will someday need it as a medicine. And you just want to be uh, as far along in that conversation as you can. And two, don't ever be shy or hesitant to be that person for somebody who may need access to this plant medicinally uh, just showing up with the plant or a gummy or whatever you think is going to work best is, you know, a huge thing that you can do to help somebody. And you just don't ever want to look back and think I should have spoken up, you know, and the only other thing I can say, Wendy, you know, just being, uh, you know, a bit, you know, my my old a bit for I've had parents a lot longer than you have. Let me say, let me put it that way. Is consistency goes a long way. Um when somebody realizes that you feel and believe the same things five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, they're just going to see it a different uh way. Um that all said, uh let's how far, first question, um, how far uh, back are we? I, I will say one thing, I, you know, I know there's a lot of scholarship that believes perhaps the first cannabis plant uh, ever uh, is is indigenous to what would be modern day China. But h- how far back can we go uh, in telling this story?
1: We are going to go all the way back to 27,000. 27- 37 BC. So the emperor of China at the time was, so it was written in scholarly texts that he had recommended cannabis tea for treating gout, rheumatism, malaria, and poor memory. Um, And then before that, they even found symbolic writings from an emperor around like 2800 BC that created the first Chinese letter for hemp. And it's a pictograph that looks like two cannabis plants or hemp plants hanging upside down underneath the roof. And that is the character Ma. And that is the same character that shows up in Magu's name. So Ma and Gu means aunt or maiden. So she is the hemp maiden or hemp auntie, which is really how Wendy and I see ourselves. We're the weed aunties.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, first I have to say, so the symbol is The plants hanging upside down from a roof, so that is very evocative to me, and I know to a lot of people, of uh, cannabis drying. You know, when I've been on farms at harvest time in Humboldt County, there's pretty much a cannabis plant hanging to dry anywhere uh, that there's space, and you know that shows a sophistication about. Um, the preparation of the plant. You're viewing a plant very differently if you're looking at it as, oh, this is a plant that grows in the ground versus this is something that we carefully harvest and hang and and dry. And then I did want to say, I do believe the emperor uh, may have been three for four uh, out of uh, those me- medicinal uses of cannabis. Can you run them back for me one at a time? It was gout. Check. Rheumatisms. Definitely. Malaria yep
1: and poor memory
0: i don't know that cannabis <laughs> fixes <laughs> <laughs>
1: well i i depends on the strain
0: <laughs> yes okay <laughs> yes yeah. who knows what kind of fire they had back then uh we so good you remember stuff uh where your keys are <laughs> and you know what what keys are so well this is this is Fase, when, when did you first kind of get on the trail of this story and where did you seek out more information?
2: We were just having a uh, gathering with our other peer weed aunties who are also of Asian backgrounds, you know, and I think this character just came up in conversation And then um, we were like, well, we got to look into this. And the more we read about this figure, which, you know, there's a lot of divergent stories within that too. Um, You know, she is the goddess of longevity. So there's definitely this, um, you know, this emphasis on elixirs and plant medicine kind of helping to uh, keep the longevity and the youthfulness of somebody. Um, And so we dug a little deeper of like, well, where deities, usually deities come in sets, you know, when you think about like Roman Greek mythology, all those deities comes in like a whole slew of people. So Magu is no different. There's a lot of deities within Taoism. And what was cool is Magu led us down this path of understanding Taoism even more, you know, and that was, and I started learning parts of my culture that I have never known before that I felt such resonance with. Growing up in China, I always felt like it was so patriarchal and did not uphold feminist values. And, and, and it was just uh, a little bit of a disconnect between me and my culture. And so it was so wonderful that Magu led us down this path where I was discovering parts of my culture that actually celebrated women's contribution to society, that celebrated women's ability to be in nature and be, um, you know, so in tune with nature that she's using the plants that she forages on this ancient magical mountain to heal the sick and the poor. Go figure, right? Go uh, like through cannabis. It's leading us down to these. Um, really wonderful values that are just waiting for us to kind of re- reclaim and rediscover about our own culture.
1: And we went down this path because we were googling and looking for information, and there th- it's just all over the place. There's you know people are writing. There's some historical texts that are cited. I mean, but again, everything is hearsay. And so we asked a friend. We're like, hey, can we? Who She's an expert in East Asian art, art and artifacts. And we're like, hey, would you go down this path with us? And can we go through and find Magu through ancient ancient Asian art and see like what can we find? What are the themes that we see? And so we did that and we turned that into a salon and art exhibition. And what we realized was there was all this really beautiful art depicting Magu um, and as a goddess um, also in her mortal life as well, that tells her story. And we very clearly see in the backgrounds, the hemp plant is very much featured. She is often carrying... um, flowers and fungus and plants that she harvested, foraged from the mountain to bring down to brew and make elixirs of life and potion. Um, And what we found happened was there was a lot of this really beautiful art and storytelling, mostly in um, China, but she also shows up in Japan, in Korean, and also Vietnamese mythology and history as well. We found all these beautiful depictions and art of Magu in ancient times, but then what happened was in 1966, China had a cultural revolution that wiped out most of the traces of Magu, destroyed all the shrines and the temples that worshipped her, and only one survived. So looking at all of the past stories and depictions, there's not a lot. And the ones that were created were mostly through um, male scholars and the male gaze. And so there haven't been new art and new stories through a feminine gaze. And so that's what led us into creating this and wanting to know more about Magu
2: so in chinese you actually don't like a lot of people don't really distinguish between cannabis and like actually harmful drugs everything is just called drugs or poison like the direct translation of smoking weed is to xidu which means inhale poison so when you grow up with that kind of language it really creates this like such a deep fear of the plant
0: Yeah, I I think the, the, the interesting thing when you look at cannabis prohibition, the history of it from a global perspective, you have governments and authorities of every ideological bent severely prohibiting a plant that is clearly medicinal, that is clearly beneficial. In the United States, there's a deep history of racism to that, but that is not the case. Everywhere there is cannabis prohibition. In very homogenized societies, you see a uh, very intense cannabis prohibition. You see it in fascist governments. You see it in communist governments. You see it in hyper-capitalistic governments. You see it in dictatorships. And I think the common thread is that this plant causes people to question authority and if you are in authority over people uh that is not something that you want and in particular when you're abusing that authority because if you were doing a good job of being the authorities and people smoked some weed and were like, oh, what's the government doing? And they were like, oh, government's uh, taking care of people's welfare and providing for a just and equitable society. I don't think they'd be so upset about it. And going along with that is this need to erase the history of cannabis because this plant has so clearly been an ally to humanity since the dawn of time predating history and so that all has to be erased and 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 in the case of these destroyed temples and holy places and artwork um quite literally destroyed but um i did uh, i believe hear that one uh, temple site to this day, the, still exists, and I would love to know more about that site.
1: What you're saying is absolutely correct, and and why we are trying to retell Magu's story is because we forgot how important this plant was in our kit history, in our culture. Um, hemp was the most common fabric of the time. That was the mo- that was the fabric of the commoners. Silk was for royalty. Silk is expensive. Hemp is very affordable and easy and fast to grow. And so in China, a lot of this hemp was purported to grow on Mount Tai, um, which is where Magu is often depicted. Mount Tai is one of the largest mountains in China, and it supposedly connects the heavens and the earth. And it's one of the five sacred mountains in Taoism. And so there is the one remaining um, temple to Magu, and it's called like Magu Mountain. You can see a review of it on TripAdvisor. Um, But that was supposedly the place where Magu came down from the mountain in the heavens and brewed the elixir of life. And so you can still go there. There's a lake and a little statue of her. And fishing and hunting are prohibited in that area because they said that Magu did not want to see others being cruelly killed or injured. Wendy and I have been talking about, we're like, we'd love to do an excursion there and go check it out. Um, And David,
2: just to circle back on the excellent point you made about like the different expressions of prohibition based on, you know, different political regimes, it may be different expressions, but there's that common thread. And that's, I think, exactly why Taoism is not as um, touted and like passed along and amplified the way that say Confucianism was. Because, you know, as I was digging into this uh, wonderful way of thinking um, and I was like, this is so cool. Well, how come we are hiding this rich art and people oriented feminist valued part of our history in favor of this, you know, uh, very patriarchal one that I do not resonate with. And, you know, and then you're, and then all of a sudden, it becomes so clear, it's because Taoism preaches about decentralizing power, you know, and whereas Confucianism, it's all about the centralizing of power, especially Um, within the male leader of the family or the unit or the community or the country.
0: This is far from the first episode of this podcast where we've talked about cannabis and spirituality in the ancient world. And just as prohibition comes from many different angles, uh, we have discussion of cannabis in the Hindu tradition uh, through uh, Shiva, among other uh, stories found in in those ancient texts. There's an, an entire episode of our podcast about uh, cannabis in the ancient world through the uh, Judaic. Tradition and later uh a separate episode about and just don't at me, just listen to the episode. If you're gonna at me, you gotta listen to the episode first about Jesus <laughs> and cannabis. Um, and you know, central in all of these stories is I think another aspect of this, which is you know, when we're talking about spiritual authorities, when we're talking about religious authorities, um, we're talking about dogma and and a hierarchical system put in place to manage your spiritual experience and what's pretty common with cannabis as an aid to spirituality is that in is that it engenders a direct connection there's this saying don't don't confuse the finger pointing at the moon for the moon if we think of our spiritual connection as the moon in this analogy, uh, cannabis allows us to look right at the moon and, and not to have uh, that experience middlemanned and interpreted for us by uh, clergy and text and uh, hierarchical organizations and sort of ingrained traditions. Um, and that's Frightening to the authorities uh that want to in essence uh these these are the views of me myself and <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way I guess like, <laughs> I, I i i i I'm speaking like of course everyone sees the world the way I do, not implying that um and you're free to weigh in or just let this one pass, but this is my own sort of um, a view of it, and I think it's something that people you know lots of people um smoke weed and they like it and it, it makes them hungry and it makes them laugh and they go on about their business and that's great and it'll be there for them when they need it as a medicine um but the people who listen to this show and the people who are guests on this show um something about this plant really called to us deeply mm-hmm. um and i think that it always has a spiritual element however you define that word um and and, and so what is in in china or elsewhere um are there uh, people still actively um i don't know if worshiping is the right word what 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 is the current state of play for (laughs) nothing i say is going out how i want it to sound like
1: like how does how does magu show up today still in modern
0: age (laughs) got
1: you yes you know i I'm actually curious. I would like to know more. As a Asian American who grew up here, I I don't have a lot of information. I would love to know more. And part of this exploration is we get to piece it together. I think like what I've seen is that Magu is often there for like birthday wishes because she's known as like the protector of women and a celebration of longevity. So it's like you know Magu sends you birthday wishes and wishes you a, a long life. But all all traces any. Anything I see about Magu in like modern Asia, the cannabis is really a race. Yeah, I
2: think we definitely are privileged being over here because even me being a immigrant right now. So me and my family moved here when I was like 10. Even now, I always have this fear. I mean, I, I mostly ignore it, but the fear is real because the threat is real. Anybody saying something negative about the Chinese government or anything that's not part of what they want to promote, like you do have this real threat of, um, you know, being disappeared. Like that's how it was explained to me since I was a kid and that like, hey, don't say certain things out loud in public because you're going to get made disappear. So it is a very real thing. And it's something I have to navigate and do mental gymnastic on all the time of like, of being an advocate, you know, knowing that I do travel there and that I do want to uncover these things. Um, But that threat of even worshipping or researching or uncovering some of these history comes with its own risk. We would love to know, and hopefully whoever's listening to this podcast will reach out and like share their knowledge on it. I think Christina and I come from a place of like, the more we talk about it, the more we do bring it back to life. But I think um, there is a real threat to people actually openly worshiping or promoting Magu or anything cannabis related that people just don't do it, at least not in public, you know, and not publicly enough where it's documented digitally that we can have access to. I think that's why we, um, you know, are curious about um going to the mountain like i think it's gonna take more of that on the ground research to really tap into are there people who are researching this are there people keeping this alive because um it is still such a taboo that comes with real threat and risk
0: we'll have to check our download numbers for uh mount (laughs) Tai. If you are out there, uh, first of all, please don't do anything that's going to uh expose you to any <laughs> risk or harm beyond, you know, this podcast will self-destruct as soon as you are done listening to it. Um but more seriously, um I I really hope that that is a journey that you can both make um I- physically to that site, and I, I, I really appreciate the journey you've taken us all on today in telling this story and sharing this story. I know it's going to resonate with a lot of people. Before we leave this beautiful, ancient world of cannabis tranquility, take me on the full journey with uh, Magu. Take me um, back to that time.
1: My favorite story of Magu um, starts with her mortal life and her as a woman. So Magu lived with her father, who was, I think, a blacksmith or worked with horses. Um, And one day she was given a peach by one of her clients. And when she went home, instead of sharing it with her father, she saw an old, poor, elderly woman on the street. And so she gave the woman the peach and said that, hang on, let me go home and make you some food. So she went home and started opening their cupboards and made food from their kitchen to bring to her. But before she could go back to find the old woman on the side of the street, her father came home, saw that she was giving away their food and had given away peach and punished her and locked her in her room. And so by the time she was able to escape her room and go find the old woman again, the woman was gone and all that was left was the peach stone. And so she took this peach stone and planted it in the middle of a village and cared for it as it grew into this vibrant peach tree that then she gave away the fruits freely to feed those in need. And eventually people would say that these peaches were healing. And then because of her generosity, because of that, because she remembered to that that tiny act of kindness and generosity to take care of somebody else elevated her and immortalized her as a goddess that possessed the elixir of life. There was a scholar who wrote about Magu as well, who came to go visit on the seventh day of the seventh month at Mount Tai, which is said that was when the can, the hemp harvest was supposedly happening. And that's still celebrated now, I hear. So He invited Magu to come down from the heavens and join them for this feast, for the celebration. And that she came down and she had boraged all of these plants and herbs and flowers and fungus from Mount Tai and brewed the elixir of immortality. And it was said that the elixir was from the celestial kitchens and it was unfit for drinking by ordinary people. So they watered it down, and they diluted it, and everybody drank some, and they were intoxicated and wanted more. And the story kind of ends there, but it's really about her brewing this elixir of life from the Celestial Kitchens. And so I like to joke, and I'm like, was Magu the first one to make a cannabis beverage? (laughs) Hmm.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you got to water it down to 10, 10 milligrams of THC per earthenware cup.
1: <laughs> so, her elixir of life has, has been depicted as something that she brewed and she concocted on this big fire at the base of the mountain in the celestial kitchens. And so, it's like all these pieces kind of come together. And what Wendy and I really found the most pertinent about Magu's story and why we resonate with it so much is that as women, as w- cannabis-consuming women who are healers, right? we cook food, we heal people through plants and food and culture and gathering and togetherness. And that's so much what Magu embodies. And so really rediscovering her story, looking back at who she was and what was depicted, it's more about what. how do we heal ourselves through Magu? What Wendy was saying earlier about this fear that she has, right? That like something bad will happen. Like I grew up here, so I'm very American. I don't have that fear. My parents have that fear, but it's my intergenerational trauma to carry because I hear it. I hear their voices and through these exercises, through these conversations, through intentional cannabis consumptions, we can begin to recognize these stories and heal ourselves.
0: That's beautiful. And and it's really full circle. It's full full circle in your uh, own, you know, and and, uh, let's face it, we have cute boys to thank, right?
1: (laughs) Like where all things start.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you've certainly uh you know left, I assume those those uh particular uh gentlemen are, are are far in the past and uh cannabis is the future, the female plant, uh indigenous to Asia, and uh may it return to mm-hmm. prominence uh there and everywhere else um and uh you know i guess um i do often like to ask uh guests to leave us with a great moment from their own personal weed history i think um we could probably do a whole other episode on on the chopped 420 victory but i i'd love to leave with a uh a Uh, a great moment in your weed friendship because you know we're all about history here um but we really like to talk about weed friendships and weed crews and um i'm wondering if there's a great moment um that you share uh wendy maybe that you could leave us with
2: man it's so hard to pick one can we talk about your dad yeah actually that was very healing So, I mean, in general, our Mogu Magu gatherings are so healing because I've never had Asian friends like this. So all of our gatherings are so magical to me because I'm finally seeing a community who look like me, who actually reflect my values and how I want to live life. Uh, But what was really cool was um, this past year um, in 2023, Christina and I um, produced this uh, art exhibit uh with our friend who's a a east asian art um, expert and i did not expect my dad to be down to come but he was already visiting me um during my birthday and i was like hey do you want to stay an extra couple days because i'm putting on this event it would be cool if you can come check it out because I I think that, you know, as much as I can describe to him or describe to anybody what we're doing, you don't really get it until you are there because those visuals, those, that experience, it's, something that doesn't exist it's so unique um, what we put on together and and it's not even just us that's making it unique it's that community coming together that's unique this event at the astor hotel uh, was in the middle of hollywood it's this beautiful members only like hotel and you walk into this beautiful lounge room full of very artistic furniture uh very vibey and plants everywhere. And we also had uh, life-size cutouts from this Magu um, uh, like photo series that I helped to uh, creatively produce. And it was basically taking an inspo from those uh, scholar uh, scrolls where you often see male scholars imbibing in the garden. It's just like a big trope in East Asian art. So we wanted to turn that up upside down on its head and have a female photographer depict us as modern magus, smoking weed and imbibing in the garden, but all having our own expertise. So, like for example, I was um, uh, cooking with a wok, but there was this like billow of smoke bomb coming out of it. So it's very fantastical, very modern, very edgy, and uh, and when you walk in, there's um, you know just the like coolest creative agents. And then there was a grilling of food and really tasty um mushrooms and uh, duck and all kinds of sauces. and And then there were people, um you know, kind of smoking uh, in different enclaves that we created. There was uh, mendy four twenty who did the um cannabis inspired henna so it's just a visual eye trip oh and also tea ceremony was happening too there's mushroom teas but there's also like non-dosed uh really high-end premium teas from our friends at Stansville who did like tea ceremony for everybody so it's just like you go to all these different booths to experience asian culture and you see cannabis and sometimes also mushrooms um very seamlessly integrate it in these cultural practices and and you know i it was so cool for me i think also for my dad because in that moment i think for him he saw that this is the american dream you know it doesn't have to look like your asian kid being a doctor a lawyer or whatever and it could look like your immigrant daughter is changing culture it's pushing american culture along because we're not on the fringes, we're ingrained and we're creating new narratives and we can be at the forefront. And so I think it was really cool for me to have my dad witness me doing that and fully seeing me in that light. And it was also cool for me to um, take care of him at the end of the night because he accidentally overdosed himself on some mooncakes. So we had these like marijuana mooncakes that were served alongside the tea ceremony. And, you know, I think something so familial, like a mooncake, he just didn't think twice about it. And he was just like, oh, yeah, of course, I'm going to eat, like, this whole thing.
1: He was told multiple times not to eat it. Do not eat this. This that Cannabis. And he's like, doi, doi, doi.
2: Yeah, he's like, right, right, okay, I'm not going to do it.
0: This is how it always tumbles out. You know, because I honestly say that because it's and this is not related to your father specifically, but because it's based on nothing, like all this stigma, all this oppression, all these laws, all this, you know, effort to eradicate this plant because there's no underpinning to it. It's not even like, you know, I'm, I firmly believe all drugs should be legalized, um, but. Some of them are clearly very dangerous and harmful. And yeah, cannabis can be, you know. But what I'm saying is, once people are like, oh, okay. They're just like, oh, you have to move on. Like, there's no in-between because it was never a real thing. Um, uh, tell me that, you you know, he, 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 he got through the experience okay.
2: Oh, yeah. No, he was fine. And I think it was cool for him to see how I show up for people in those moments. Because, I mean, let's be honest, we've all been there, you know? I, even though, like, the first time I smoked weed, it was fine, there's definitely been times when I overdosed myself when I made edibles, because edibles and smokables have completely different effects on the body.
1: For me, as an observer of all of this going down, it was hysterical, because I just see her dad, like, sitting in the corner, staring at the student glass, because we were making smoked cocktails, and he's just sitting there staring. And then we get home, we're, like, on our way home, and I just get a text from Wendy, and we're just going back and forth. He's like, my dad, we're like, what did he eat? What happened? We're trying to like figure it out backwards. And it turns out he ate like more than half or three quarters of the moon cake because it was just too delicious. <laughs> and the whole thing was 40 milligrams. I was like, oh no, I, that's just way too much. But he was such a champ. And I also like for me, like knowing Wendy's story, being friends and like having, you know, really heard this really very real raw emotional part of her, you know, of her life, like, and her relationship with her father and her mom, it makes me brave to want to have these conversations with my parents. And so to see her dad come and come to our event and to sit there and watch his face as he was watching Wendy speak to this amazing group of people as his daughter, as this woman of power with like just such clarity of who she is. And then for him to finally feel comfortable enough to be like, I am knowingly eating this mooncake and going through this experience and her being brave to have this with her father inspires me to have that with my parents and like I gifted my mom weed tea for Christmas and for the first time she was actually really stoked about it like and, and to bring it around like you said earlier like you know don't be afraid to have these conversations with people also don't give up on the people leave room for them to surprise you because when I first started my parents were like oh I don't know and they're still a little hesitant but like they're absolutely they they have come so far and I'm so proud of them And I'm proud of you, Wendy. (laughs) Thank you. I have you to thank
2: for, you know, always being such a supportive friend in my corner. You know, I just really felt like, you know, in that moment of deciding, am I going to come out of the wee closet to them or not? I'm like, how can I fully call myself like an advocate for this plant if I'm still in the closet about it? You know, I'm really, really grateful for the people who see the work I do and continue to show up for me like christina um so you know thanks girl. well
0: i want to thank you both one more time for uh sharing your personal stories for sharing this very ancient story um and especially now that i know that uh everyone made it through that uh experience intact i'm gonna get my stamp that says great moment in weed history and i'm gonna uh, officially designate that um I'm sorry, is it moon moon cake
2: moon cakes, yeah, we eat them for mid autumn festival, symbolizing togetherness with family,
0: well wow, it certainly did that uh and much more, and I'm gonna designate that moon cake moment and the whole uh event that you put on and your whole journey in recovering is very fascinating, very important. Uh, history of cannabis as a great moment in weed history, and uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, we will see you next Weedness Day for another episode. And uh, until then, please stay high, healthy, and happy. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, Please consider supporting us on Patreon. You could put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, aka Bean.